Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of hustle and bustle. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. How you doing, Paul? Doing great. That's good. How are you, buddy? Bad, man. Bad. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. I think I said this before in a recent episode that I was having a bad day. I, I swear I have a lot of good days. It's just the bad ones have been coincidentally landing on podcast days lately for some reason. Well, now your days turn it up. Yeah. Podcasting always makes it a little better. But So I told you about some of the stuff that went wrong today that I don't need to talk about on the podcast, but I didn't tell you about another thing that happened. Uh-oh. On the way home, rock flew up and gave me a chip in my windshield. Ah, that sucks. I know. My last car I had for so many years, and I drove it way more than I drive my current car, and I never got a single chip in the windshield. I have two chips now in my windshield. Oh, man. What the heck? I feel like the same for me. Like, I had that old beater car for like 12 years. Never had a problem with the windshield. I bought my car now, and I think about within about a year of having it, I got a huge chip in the windshield. What is going on, man? Are they making those windshields lower quality than they used to? Or are the roads just in worse condition? I don't know. I feel Everything's like falling is, apart. That's just how the world goes. Like, oh, I see you have an expensive vehicle there. Let me mess <laughs> it up for you. Yeah. You get it fixed? Yeah. It's like another hundred bucks I got to do to make sure it doesn't turn into a long crack, you know. But you know who doesn't have to worry about chips in their windshield? People that ride trains to work. There we go. Boom. <laughs> I bet you were wondering how I was going to get there, huh? Great, great transition. Thank you, thank you. So yeah, today we're talking about train stations. We have talked about trains before on the podcast. We did episode six where we covered a bunch of different types of transportation. And then there was episode 85 where we focused on the Shinkansen system, the bullet trains specifically. But today we're going to dig deep into Japan's train stations and the unique sights and sounds, smells, Ooh. tastes, <laughs> touches even, perhaps, uh, tactile sensations that you can experience yeah, at train stations. Don't touch people at train stations. No, but, but there are all sorts of other things <laughs> that you could feel. Okay. Yeah. Are you, you getting excited now after you were dreading doing this episode for so long? Oh, man. I mean, I found some good stuff. I feel like this is also becoming a trend where we, we talk about... <laughs> How, how hesitant we were about these topics. We got to stop doing that. I feel like it's usually me, and then I'm, but I'm always then like, I was wrong. They're this all good great. topics. I don't think a topic itself can be good or bad. I think the episode can be good or bad, but if you dig deep enough, there's always little treasures yeah. in any topic, you know? Yeah, there's some really cool stuff that I came across here. I'm sure you found some cool stuff too. Yeah, You I always do. I learned some things, for sure. Me too. Part of... What I was enjoying about this is it just made me feel like Japan. I don't know, lear- learning about the train stations, thinking about the train stations has brought up back all my memories yeah. of being in Japan. Yeah. So I kind of enjoyed that. Dude, on Instagram, I keep seeing reels that are just like little clips of the inside of a train station and then they're playing the, the music, Yeah, you know, all the little jingles. They yeah. really transport you back to that yeah. very spot, you know? I don't remember what the name of the effect is, but every time we research an episode, I feel like I start seeing that stuff everywhere Mm. because you don't notice. Like when you buy a car, you're like, oh my gosh, everybody's got my car and you never noticed it before. Yeah. Like I'm just seeing stuff all over Twitter about Shinjuku Station and this and that, like, and that I never like would have 
thought a second time about. And now I'm like, train stations are everywhere. I mean, how much of it is that phenomenon? Which I think, is it Bader-Meinhof? Is that the one? Or am I mixing it up with a different one? I don't know. Anyway, or is it that your phone is listening to you and you know presenting things to you? Or I mean, uh, when you start doing research, especially, it starts yeah, like yeah. thinking that you're all into that topic. Both, probably. Yeah. One interesting thing about train stations for me is that it's so prevalent in Japan that so many people there spend time in train stations every single day of their lives. Yeah. I also think it's cool that it's a project that lasts so long. Like you can be in a train station that's a hundred plus years old if they build a good one. So it's an infrastructure project that could stand the test of time. Yeah. It's cool how many of them are like architectural landmarks too. You know, they become like a symbol of the city. Yeah. I got a few crazy statistics. Yeah, I had I had just like a list of fun facts for the intro. <laughs> I tried to like pare it down because there are so many, but I'll go first. Okay. There are over 9,000 railway stations in Japan. That's a lot of stations. Yeah. Should we trade off? Like, Yeah, yeah, let's okay. do that. Ooh, well, now I feel like I got to pick a good one or you could take it. Ooh. Okay, my first one, I mean, this is kind of a, an obvious one maybe, but. Shinjuku Station is the busiest station not only in Japan but in the world with an average of more than 3.5 million passengers every single day. Uh, also, if I can roll in like a, a, an add-on fact to this sure. one, on the list of top 51 busiest stations in the world, all but six of them are in Japan. That's wild. Yeah. All of the top 10. Okay. That, that, doesn't your... count, that doesn't count as my facts. <laughs> I was going to say, oh, I get another one now. Okay. <laughs> the re- most recent number I could find for this one was 2017, but trains carried 25 billion passengers in Japan in 2017, counting individual trips, not 25 billion different people. That would be impossible. Right, right. What was the number again? 25 billion. Wow. That's crazy. It's <laughs> yeah. such a small country. Yeah. That's everyone on the planet. Over two and a half times over. Crazy. Yeah. How many people are on the planet now? I haven't been keeping track lately. I learned stuff like 20 years ago when I was in school, and it's all irrelevant now. It's more than 8 billion now, I, right? I think we're all, I know we passed 7 billion a while ago. We're probably over 8 now, but I really don't know. You said 25 billion? Yeah. That's more than three times. Yeah. Eight. Yeah. It's anyway, probably about three times. The numbers, yeah, they're somewhere around there. <laughs> so this is kind of fun. Uh, we've talked before about how punctual trains are in Japan, but of course, sometimes there are unavoidable delays, and they take that very seriously, as we talked about in the Shinkansen episode. Like, they uh, they apologized when a train left, like, 20 seconds early or something like that. I don't remember the numbers, but my fact here is, if your train is late by five minutes or more, they have something called a Chien Shomei Show, which is a certificate of lateness. Uh, and you can get that from the station staff to show to your employer or your teacher or whoever was expecting you. So you can prove that being late was not your fault. Yeah. I feel like that's partly from the great customer service culture in Japan, but it's also partly due to the fact that the trains are just so good. No one believes you if you're <laughs> like, oh, the trade was delayed. Like, yeah, right. Dude, that never happens. Like, you literally need a piece of paper for anyone to believe you that that actually happened. Totally. That's like Japan's version of my dog ate my homework. <laughs> yeah, I got a flat tire on the way here, man. <laughs> uh. This kind of goes off your earlier thing about the busiest train stations in the world. 
But the three busiest train stations in the world are all in Tokyo. Yeah. Isn't that wild? In the same city. That's the last one I got. All right. I got a few more. These are quick, though. Do you know what station holds the record for largest number of train companies connected to a single station? Oh, uh, Tokyo Station. Good guess. It's actually Yokohama Station. Oh, okay. It serves six companies. Wow. Yeah. I have the furthest station in each of the cardinal directions. Do you want to guess at some of those? Does Okinawa count? Yeah, of course. Well, I don't know what the station, I don't know which the southernmost station in Okinawa is, or if they even have many trains. They have a monorail in Naha. The furthest south station is called Akamine Station. That's on the Yui Rail, or the full name is Okinawa Urban Monorail. Okay. The furthest north one is Wakanai Station on JR Hokkaido Soya Mainline. Okay. Furthest east is Higashi Nemuro Station on JR Hokkaido Nemuro Line. Oh, Hokkaido too for east. Yeah. Okay, I can kind of see that. And actually, I guess all four of these are either in Hokkaido or Okinawa. The furthest west station I've been to, it is the Naha Airport Station. Okay. Also on the the monorail, the UE rail down there. Mm. I wouldn't have thought west for Okinawa, but now that I think about it, yeah, of course. I mean, there are islands west of Okinawa, but they're all super tiny. Yeah. And they don't have trains. I also have the longest station name and the shortest station name. Okay. The longest one? This is crazy, man. Minami Aso Mizuno Umareru Sato Hakusui Kogen Station. Where's that? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Uh, the shortest station name is Tsu Station. Okay, I was thinking maybe two letters, three <laughs> three letters. That's one in, character though. Yeah, that's in Mie Prefecture. Okay. Nice facts. Thank you. That's all I got. Okay. I liked yours too, by the way. Thank you. Well done. Thank you. I tried to pick some good ones. Another thing that I find interesting is. The way that train stations are tied into the entire public infrastructure, other than really roads, like almost every major train station is going to have a taxi hub and a bus stop and an airport shuttle. The way that everything ties together, I think is really cool to make a public transit system that works for almost anywhere. Yeah. I mean, the trains really are the arteries of Japan, you know? They are integral to the city planning all over the country. Yep. Well, before we get to the history section, I think it's time for... Item of the Week! This is the segment where we talk about our favorite items from our friends at bentoandco.com, which is a website where you can order authentic Japanese bento boxes, cookware, snacks, and more. This week, the item I want to highlight is their woven bamboo bento box. Did you see that, Paul? No, what? Dude, you got to look at it. I know we still haven't, I feel like we need to do an episode about bento boxes. And I mean, even in the item of the week, we haven't really said a ton about what bento boxes are, but they're so cool. Like a lot of people describe them as just portable lunch boxes, but there's so much more than that. They're so smart the way that they are designed. They're super compact and they're ultra portable. Like, I feel like in America, I mean, I find myself bringing my lunch in like a plastic target bag or whatever. Yeah. But like in Japan, the food is packed in there so that they're as small and compact as possible. And they also plan out like what the right proportions are for like rice versus meat and vegetables and that kind of stuff. Anyway, there's this whole big thing. But a lot of bento boxes these days are plastic. 
Uh, if you look for traditional ones, you can find ones that are made of bamboo. But this was the first time I'd ever seen one that was made of woven bamboo strips. They're super cool looking. I'd never heard of that before. Yeah. I thought when you said woven bamboo, I thought you were going sushi rolling mat, like 100%. No, they're like little woven baskets almost that you can put food in. They're hand woven, actually, from strips of bamboo in Oita Prefecture. Nice. in Kyushu. And I mean, they look really cool. Like, they really look like works of art. And they can breathe. You're not just holding in all that moisture. So they say it's good for, like, your rice because it won't get all mushy. Nice. And uh, if you're worried about cleaning them, like, I was kind of wondering, well, can you put rice just, like, right onto the bamboo? Well, for one thing, bamboo is naturally antibacterial, so that's pretty cool. But also they say you can put parchment paper in there uh, to put the food on so you can save a little bit of cleaning. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they're really pretty, really tempted to get one. Uh, They even have two different sizes. There's like a long skinny one and then kind of a fatter one. So if you want to get your own hand-woven bamboo bento box or any other products they offer, you can go to bentoandco.com and use our discount code SIGHTSEEING10 to get 10% off your order. Or you could also use the link on the support us page of our website, which is sightseeingjapanpodcast.com, and that link will automatically apply the discount. Ready to get into history, Paul? Yeah. All right. So you said that you like focus on a couple specific areas. I kind of tried to just get a sense of like why train stations are the way they are. So like, I mean, some of the history, of course, is about like the trains, or I guess more specifically about the train companies, because that's what it's all about with the train stations, right? Like different companies have their own stations. Sometimes stations bring together a bunch of different companies. So I have some history about how that stuff happened. Okay. So the development of Japanese train networks started pretty quickly after Japan opened its borders at the insistence of one Matthew Perry in 1853. This was not the first time Japan ever heard about trains, though. They, they knew they existed. It heard about them from some of the few foreign traders who were allowed to do business with Japan during the Edo period. But they didn't actually start talking about building trains themselves until the end of the Edo period. And Paul, you know, I'd always assumed that trains started with the Meiji Restoration because they were all about rapid modernization and looking into foreign technologies and all that stuff, right? Yeah. Did you know that's not actually the case? Yeah, it started a little before that. Mm-hmm. The Tokugawa shogunate had already been talking about building a train line between Edo and Kyoto. And Edo would very soon become Tokyo. And just before the shogunate fell, they actually gave a grant to an American diplomat so he could start building a line from Yokohama to Edo. That's a really interesting piece of history with the Beiji Restoration. Because a lot of the people involved in making that happen were traditionalists. And the Tokugawa government had started westernizing a little bit, and they were reacting to that. And then once they won and got into power, the government went totally westernizing. And then some of the original people from the rebellion rebelled again against the government that they helped create. Like the Satsuma Rebellion you're talking about. Yeah, Saigo. Yeah. He didn't like the westernization that was happening. Yeah. So he rebelled again. <laughs> it is interesting. I never realized that the Tokugawa's like started in that direction already. Because I guess, I mean, you know, they were in power for the entire 250 year Edo period. So I, I guess I always, in my mind, the image is 
1600s, you know, super traditional stuff. But by the end of the Edo period, like things were already changing pretty quick. Yeah. I think that's understandable, though, because the Edo period is so tied in with the isolationism. Yeah. You know, so you think of them, oh, well, they're not westernizing because they're isolating. But, well, you know, with uh, Matthew Perry opening up the borders, that kicked them in the butt to be like, okay, maybe we do need to start changing how we do things. Yeah. So, yeah, that American dude had the grant start building that line. But when the Meiji government came into power, they were like, we don't want these foreigners building our railways. We want to make this a Japanese thing. So what they did was they actually hired a bunch of European technical advisors and had them train the Japanese people in everything. And then once they were all trained up, they kicked the foreigners out and were like, okay, we got this now. That's a really smart way to do it. There's a big push right now in America for more high-speed rail because we have very, very little. And there's a big camp in it saying... Let's not just like hire a Chinese or Japanese company to come build it for us. Let's hire them to come show us how to build it because we need to learn how to do this ourselves and gain this knowledge and technical skill. Yeah. Same thing happened in the automobile industry. And this is just off of memory, so I could get some of the details wrong here, but I think it might have been when like Toyota started opening factories in America, they sent you know, the Japanese factory workers over to like set everything up and show them how to run a factory efficiently. It was completely brand new to these American companies and it kind of revolutionized a lot of different assembly line type work in America. And like if you've been trained in the lean system, L-E-A-N, at work, that came from Toyota. Like I'm pretty sure they pioneered that whole thing and then it spread into all sorts of other industries, even outside of assembly lines and factories. That's cool. Yeah. I remember from the cars episode that the Japanese auto industry started using robots and that technology in their assembly lines way before anybody else. Mm -hmm. So the next thing I have is about the first railway that opened. And you said you had some stuff on that, right? In 1872, the first line opened between Tokyo and Yokohama. It was actually on October 14th. 1872, and it was between Shimbashi Station and Yokohama Station. So apparently, I mean, going back to the topic of the episode, train stations, those are the first ones, Shimbashi Station and Yokohama Station. Although, Paul, did you realize those are not the same Shimbashi and Yokohama stations that exist today? A lot of the stations have changed over the years. The original Shimbashi later became modern Shiodome Station, and Yokohama Station became Sakuragicho Station. Okay. And the trains were really expensive at first. Kind of crazy expensive. A third class ticket, it's like the the worst class, would have cost the equivalent of 5,000 yen in today's money. Yeah, that's a lot. I don't know, like 40 bucks. Yeah. At least according to the current exchange rate, which is ridiculous, by the way. I love it. Yeah. As long as I can get back there soon. Right. But those, those same tickets now between those stations cost less than 500 yen. So that's pretty awesome. (laughs) And these first train cars were kind of bare bones. They didn't have a lot of amenities. They definitely didn't have bathrooms. And the ride, I mean, they were slow. The ride between those first two stations was 53 minutes. Wow. With no bathrooms. Wow. So apparently, I read that sometimes people would pee out the window. (laughs) Sounds like the 1800s. Yeah. I thought this was really funny. I saw a mention of a former samurai who was fined for farting out the window. (laughs) 
That's actually polite. Right. Isn't that better than farting in in the train? Yeah. Yeah. Good for him. I don't know. Maybe he was sometimes, really showboating, you know? Sometimes the law's wrong. <laughs> That's true. But 53 minutes back then was revolutionary. They didn't even have cars yet. Yeah. I guess, so you're either yeah. walking or riding a horse or taking the train. Yeah. Can you imagine having to hold a fart for 53 minutes? I mean... I would just fart on the train. Sorry, everybody. So in the coming years, of course, train lines were rapidly built around the country. The network expanded pretty quickly. So those, those first trains and stations and lines were all built by the government. But if you've been to Japan lately, you know that now there are a bunch of private railways all over the place that are run by different companies. The first one of those was Nippon Railway in 1881. They ran trains between Ueno Station and Aomori. Wow. Long distance. Yeah. But they still used tracks that were laid by the government. I thought this was pretty interesting. The government was totally cool with that. Like, they were letting anybody use their train lines because the idea was, in 1892, they passed the Railway Construction Act, so they would use public funds to lay train tracks in rural areas, and then they let the private railways use all of those tracks that they laid. So it's kind of encouraging them to serve further and further out areas. Okay. And I saw that, I mean, the government could have set up a national rail system to do everything themselves, but do you know why they didn't, Paul? I would just guess that'd be difficult to manage. Japanese are pretty good at managing things. Yeah, but bureaucracy going to be bureaucracy. Well, what I saw is that the reason was actually the Satsuma Rebellion. Really? Yes. Because this was like pretty soon after the government had quashed the rebellion, and that was that cost a lot of money. Sure. So they didn't have money left over to build all these train systems, so they left a lot of it up to those private companies. Okay. So you could say that we have Saigo Takamori to thank for all these different train companies that we deal with that makes everything all confusing now. But not that confusing if you have an IC card, Right. Right. But by 1905, more than three quarters of Japanese railways were privately owned. But that's not the case these days, right, Paul? The JR companies have a whole bunch of those. Yeah, I don't know what what it's at these days. I'll tell you. Yeah. I will go on. Yeah. So after the Russo-Japanese War, the government decided to nationalize most, but not all, of the railways in 1906. So they created a Ministry of Railways in 1920, to lead what they called the Japanese Government Railways. Uh, In 1949, they replaced Japanese Government Railways with Japanese National Railways. And at that point, the government ran about 70% of the train lines in the country. So it kind of flipped from a lot of private lines back to more government lines. Okay. And of course, Japanese National Railways was the entity that created the Shinkansen network, the bullet trains, starting in the 60s. Go listen to episode 85 to hear all about the Shinkansen specifically. But as we mentioned in that episode, they had a lot of problems with that whole thing because it was extremely expensive to build all those high-speed trains. Also, this is the time when cars were becoming more popular, which we talked about in episode 121. So less people were taking the trains, more people started driving. And Even though we covered this in the Shinkansen episode, I didn't realize how bad things got at this point for the railways. There were union protests and strikes, and then in response, the railways raised train fares. They ran less trains during rush hour, so like it was just worse for everybody. 
And people even started setting trains on fire. Oh, man. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I knew they had some financial problems, but wow. Yeah. Gets even crazier. This is the craziest thing I found. There was actually a hostage situation at one point where a mob took a station master hostage. Wow. They were so angry. Isn't that crazy? That's wild. Yeah. So to fix that whole situation in 1987, JNR, Japanese National Railways, was privatized and split into those seven JR companies that we now have under the JR Group. The government also introduced some taxes and subsidies to help support them. And today, those companies still control about 70% of the train lines in the country. Mm -hmm. And if you've been to Japan, you've almost definitely ridden on one of those JR trains. Have I talked enough about history? Yeah, that was really interesting. I'm glad. Uh, So yeah, not all directly related to the train station topic, but I just wanted to give an idea of like why things are set up the way they are these days. A couple additional things. Paul, these days there are more than 100 private railway companies in Japan. And I just wanted to point out that if you're in a train station in Japan these days, they can be set up in a lot of different ways. Like with all these different companies running around, you could have a station that only has JR trains, or you could be in a station that's run by a private railway company. Sometimes there are two stations right next to each other, and one of them is JR, and the other one is for a private railway. And a lot of big stations contain multiple different railways run by different companies, so like they can be set up in all sorts of different ways now. Yeah. Ready to get into the many things that you can experience with your five senses in train stations in Japan, but not quite like at the platform level, but before you've gotten to the platform, like you're just in the station and looking around at all the cool stuff. Are you ready to talk about that, Paul? Yeah, I am. Okay. Train stations are not just train platforms. There's so much more there, especially at some of these bigger stations. So true. One big thing being shopping malls. There are entire underground shopping malls in some of these stations. They're called Ekinaka, which literally means inside the station. Yeah, they can be located inside or outside the ticket gates. Like they can be kind of anywhere. And I mean, they're malls. They have like any kind of store you can think of. You can shop, you can eat. They have entertainment venues, drug stores, florists, souvenir shops, travel agents, hotels, banks, post offices. Sometimes even farmer's markets pop up in there. That's pretty cool. The one that actually surprised me is daycare centers. Smart. That's which so smart. makes a ton of sense, right? Yeah. You're heading there anyways on your way to work. Drop your kid off, pick them up as soon as you get home. Yeah. As you're walking by, get into your train, just toss your kid on in there. On our last trip, I can't remember if it was Osaka or Kobe, but I got a piece of cake at a little vegan pop-up place that was in a train station we were walking through. It was Kobe. Okay. It was right after we hiked down from the. Uh, oh, yeah. Just we Nuno were just Biki getting Earth into Garden. the train. Yeah, yeah. And I grabbed that. It was good. I just had a sudden flashback to that day. It was such a great day. There's so much in these train stations that you could not really do anything else with your life. You could like walk to the train station, go to work, come back, do all your shopping, pick up your kid, go home, never leave the house for anything else. You could be a mole person just living <laughs> in underground tunnels. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty convenient to have all that stuff down there. Like if I walked past a florist every day, I'd probably buy Yi a lot more flowers. (laughs) She'd like that. She would. I surprised her with a 
a dozen roses when she uh, got her new job recently. Nice. Yeah. Nice. That's really sweet. Yeah, I was surprised in Japan at how much was down there. Like the first time I went to Japan, I was like, man, there's so many stores down here. This is crazy. Actually, sometimes the malls even like are so long and big that they will connect to stations. Like I remember, I think it was in Sapporo when I was at this train station and then I just started wandering because I'm like, oh, look at all these cool shops. And then a few minutes later, I found myself like walking up to another train station. I'm like, oh, yeah, I I just walked like a mile or something. I feel like they're often not just like added in. They're like, it's a walking route. It's between two train lines or two stations. Like, so everyone's walking there anyways. That's how they get all the business. Totally. All right. So you did all your shopping. Well, you do eventually need to get on a train. So next you're going to go to the ticketing area and buy yourself a ticket. Unless again, you have an IC card, which makes everything so easy. But if you do need to buy a ticket, I mean, there are some trains where you do actually have to buy a specific ticket for that train. A lot of times, not every time, but most of the time, there are machines where you can get your tickets or recharge your IC card and they make it super easy. Everything's automated. Yeah, there's often a ticket office there too that you can go talk to somebody if you need to. Mm -hmm. And the ticketing area is usually right next to a gate. So now you got your ticket, you got to get through the gate. There'll be little icons on the gate. If it's an arrow, it usually means the gate's open for you to go that way. If it's a circle, it means don't go through this one because people are coming through the other way. They're color-coded too. It's a green arrow or a red circle. So it's easy to tell like, oh, I can go through here or oh, I should go to a different one. Yeah, and it's really easy. If you got the IC card, you just tap it right on top and the door opens for you and you walk through. If you've got a ticket, there's a little slot you put it in. The ticket gets sucked through the machine. The door opens and you pick it up kind of on the other side of the little door. But don't forget to pick up your ticket because you need it getting off the train too. Yeah. That's the situation at most stations, at more modern stations. But if you get into rural areas, they don't always have those gates. Yeah. You also want to make sure you're at the right gate too. If you have a ticket, it won't work at the wrong gate. Like say you're at a train station with multiple different lines. Normally, if you're buying the ticket right there, you're going to get the right one. But you don't want to try to get into the JR line when you're trying to get on a different company's line. So you got to make sure you're at the right gate to get into the train you're looking for. Yeah. I went into the wrong company's line one time with my IC card. Ah. And I'm like, oh, crap, I need to be at that other one. So I just turned around and tried tapping my card again. It's like, eh, eh, eh. I'm like, uh, oh, I was crap. wondering what would happen. So what did you have to do? I had to go over to the little manned kiosk thing and, and just tell him, like, I'm a dummy. I, I meant to go over there. And he just fixed it. And no big deal. Okay. Yep. You, but I just jumped over and ran. <laughs> yeah. I just looked around to see if anyone was <laughs> paying attention and, and knocked over an old lady as I was sprinting through. <laughs> That's actually great because the people chasing you stop to help the old lady. Exactly. I was thinking. (laughs) So once you get past the ticket gate, you'll often see an LED timetable that shows you all of the trains that are leaving soon and what platform they are leaving from. So it's a good idea to take a look at that, figure out where your train is going to leave from. It's also going to show on there which trains might be express or limited express. So depending on which stop you need to get off at, an express train might go past that stop. So you got to make sure you're looking for the right train. 
Google Maps will usually tell you if you want to take an express or you want to take a local train. I was just going to say that, yeah. Google Maps will be super helpful with that stuff. Like, especially certain cities have more of those, like, trains that go in the same direction, but it's like one of them stops at more stops than the other one. So if you just look at Google Maps and look for, like, the exact minute that the train is leaving, you can usually find the right one. Or sometimes Google Maps, I think, will even tell you the platform number, right? Yeah. And it will tell you express, like take the express train. It can save you a lot of time. If you're taking a little bit of a longer trip, you can save 20 minutes sometimes by getting an express versus a local. So now you've figured out the exact time that your train's coming. So you know if you have time or not to go enjoy everything else you can find in the train station, right, Jason? That's correct. Where are you heading first? I'm going to get an Eki, Ben. Of course you You are. You know me. Talked about Eki Ben before. Uh, Eki means station. Ben is short for bento. As I, I mentioned, bentos in the item of the week section. Yep. These are uh, train station box launches. And my recommendation, my enthusiastic recommendation is that every time you're getting on a long distance train that allows eating on it, not all of them do, but the long distance ones most likely do, get one of those Eki Bens. There's so much to love about them. They're delicious. They're beautifully arranged. They're nice to look at. They're fun to eat. And you can get a taste of the local cuisine because a big thing about Ekibens is that they're made with local ingredients. They showcase the local popular foods. Yeah. They even have like novelty ones with reusable containers. There's a really popular one that's shaped like a Shinkansen train. Yeah, I see that. I have too, and I've been tempted to get one, but it's like I just... I've been packing so minimalistically Right, lately. you have space to bring it home. Yeah. They're also affordable, so Definitely. there's nothing to lose. And you save the time of eating on the train without giving up any of the deliciousness that you go straight to your sightseeing activity as soon as your train arrives. Exactly. So I know we've talked about these in previous episodes, but I dug deeper than I ever have before on okay. my research on these. I got some history. I think you said you have some history here too, right? I have one interesting fact. What's that? The first Ekiben ever sold was at Utsunomiya Station in 1885. We're talking ancient traditions here. Yes, I found that same story. And I want to point out there is some debate about the origins of Ekiben. Sure. But that is the story I saw too. It was on July 16th, 1885. You got the dates. Yep. And it was, they were selling onigiri at Utsunomiya Station in Tochigi Prefecture. By the way, Paul, did that name ring a bell to you? Yeah. Why? Uh, it just sounds familiar. We stopped at that station to switch trains to go to Nikko. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Now, now it makes sense. So supposedly that first Ekiben, it was just rice and pickled daikon radish wrapped in bamboo leaves. Okay. And then from there... That idea spread around Japan to other stations, and it became a whole big thing. I think I read that they were selling them like on the platform through the window to the people that were already on the train. Sure. I mean, bentos were already a thing, so it makes sense that they were like, oh, you're going to be on a train? Let me sell you lunch. Yeah, and convenience stores didn't exist at this point. Like the, the train station was really the only place that you could get this kind of thing where you could try specialty foods from different places as you were traveling around. Kind of cool. It's hard to imagine Japan without konbinis. I know. They become such a defining characteristic of Japanese cities. So yeah, all this to say, 
you know, Ekibens are special. Like it's, it's more than just a quick little snack or lunch that you get to like save time and money. A lot of people consider it a really important part of travel that, you know, people look forward to. And it's not even just about the food itself. It's about that whole experience. I saw that there's a saying that the scenery you see outside your train window adds a special spice to your Ekiben. <laughs> okay. Isn't that fun? few other little things at Utsunomiya Station, that place where supposedly this all started, they actually celebrate an annual Ekiben anniversary celebrating okay. that history. Um, and Paul, just for you, I saw that uh, vegan bentos are becoming more and more common. Lately. Let's go. Yeah. You don't just have to pick up a bunch of rice balls. <laughs> Which is fine too, but I'd rather have a full bento. Sure. Balanced meal. Yeah. That's all I got about Eki Ben. Okay. So now you got lunch taken care of and you still got a little bit of time before your train. Kind of along the same lines of local specialties. There's something in Japan called omiyage, which is a tradition of Japanese travelers bringing back gifts from their destination to their families, friends, colleagues who did not make the trip with them. Yeah, they're just souvenirs that you bring to your loved ones. Yeah, and it's really popular to bring food back, especially a local specialty from where you were. So you might find a shop specializing in this at the trade station, and you can pick up last minute because you're Paul, and you're like, oh man, I didn't buy gifts for anybody. Let me grab some stuff real quick. And then you don't have to carry it around with you too. You get it right on your way home. Totally. And at first glance, I mean, it might even be hard for a second to tell which is the place selling bentos and which is the place selling omiyage because they're all like wrapped up really pretty like. You'll just see a bunch of boxes kind of piled up on each other. Yeah, they might be about the same size. Yeah. But these omiyage, like they're already gift wrapped and generally they're like even inside the box, there'll be little individually wrapped treats. So like you don't have to get one person a whole box. You can just get one box and then like open it up and hand them out to all your coworkers or whatever when you get home. Yeah, you get a box of 12 and bring them to the office. It's common to have cookies or cake or candy be one of these items, something that's easily packaged and handed out, not temperature dependent, so you can have it in your bag for a long train ride. And like you said, like these are representative of the local culture, and a lot of them become kind of famous. Like If you know some friend of yours is going to a certain city, you might be like, oh, pick me up some of these things, you know? I've heard about those. I really want to try them. Yeah. So I actually have a list of some of the well-known omiyage from certain cities. The one that's popping into my head is when we were in Nico. That, like, egg thing. Cheese cheese tamago. Yeah, like the the cheese egg was everywhere I saw. Yeah. And you tried one, right? I did. I'm trying to remember. It wasn't at all what I was expecting. Yeah, like, you said it was like totally different from, from what you thought. It was just a little pastry kind of thing that looks sort of like an egg. So like there's it wasn't a yellow thing inside. actually an egg. It like looked like an egg. Like you thought it'd be an egg. I mean, they were good. I'm not going to put them down, but I was really hoping for an actual egg wrapped in cheese or something like that. Yeah, the pictures look like a soft boiled egg or something. Yeah, all the pictures I felt were very misleading <laughs> okay, about the okay. actual nature of this thing. All right, so what's the list? So in Tokyo... A really famous one is Tokyo Banana. What is that? They're these little banana-shaped sponge cakes, and they have banana custard cream inside. I've seen them all over. I still haven't tried them personally, but, I mean, you, you'll find them in all, all sorts of different stations around the city. 
That one surprises me. Why? Like bananas and Tokyo. What do they have to do with each other? Yeah, I don't know. Just a business that popped up in Tokyo as far as I know. Okay. But they make a bunch of different varieties now. They have like different designs on them and stuff. Okay. Like actually printed onto the sponge cakes. That's cool. cool. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, in Hiroshima, we talked about Momiji Manju. Yes. Those originated on Miyajima, little island uh, off the coast of Hiroshima. And they're these little maple leaf shaped cakes with bean paste, or these days you can get all sorts of other things inside there. Those are pretty tasty. I definitely had some of those. Uh, in Hokkaido, Paul, have you heard of Shiroi Koibito? I don't think so. They're super good, man. They're these little cookies, like really thin, delicate little cookies with chocolate in between. Okay. Like a chocolate sandwich type thing. Sure. And I actually used to work with a girl from China. And when I told her that I was going to Hokkaido, she's like, get some Shiroi Koibito. And I'd never heard of it. And like, she was really excited about it. They even have a theme park in Sapporo, actually. Shiroi Koibito Park. Did you bring some back for her? Or did of course you just, I did. Did you just ate them all? Oh, I gave her some. You come back, you're like, you're right. They were really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They were delicious. I wish I'd brought some home. <laughs> yeah, theme park. It's like a chocolate theme park. Doesn't that sound fun? Sounds nice. Another thing, this isn't specific to one city, but you could look for Kit Kats. We've mentioned that before. Japan has tons of different crazy Kit Kat flavors. And a lot of them are like, I mean, the flavors will be specific to a certain city based on what that city is known for. Sure. So it's fun to collect those as you travel around. Like you'll probably see a whole bunch of different types if you're going to different parts of the country. Well, after our bento and our gifts, now I'm going to be thirsty, right? So I'm going to go find a vending machine. I need some energy. And there's going to be lots of vending machines serving all sorts of things as they do in Japan. You see drinks, snacks, ice cream. There may be some hot food vending machines. Possible. Most common ones are going to be the drinks. Maybe even a cigarette vending machine. Also possible. But tons of drink ones. And I feel like, I mean, you see coffee in a lot of vending machines, but I feel like the ones in train stations specifically, you're going to find a lot of different types of coffee because people are like on their morning commute or whatever, want to yeah. just grab some coffee. Yeah. Also, we haven't really talked about Japanese energy drinks before. Have you tried many of those? Um, No, like one or two maybe. I kind of made it my mission on this last trip to try a bunch of those. Because they're not like American energy drinks. Like in America, we have Red Bull and Monster, Rockstar. Though, like a lot of them are huge. Yeah. And like, yeah. like 500 milligrams of caffeine. Yeah. And I mean, you can find those in Japan. They, they're definitely around and you'll see them in vending machines sometimes. But there are also a bunch of Japan-specific energy drinks that are really small, actually. They come in like these little glass bottles. They look like elixirs, like something that a... Like an herbalist would give you. What's the word I'm looking for? You know, like a guy that's in kind of his dark, dank little workshop and he's got like bubbling cauldrons around him and stuff. And he's like, here, drink this, that kind of thing. Yeah. That's what those bottles make me think of. Yeah, same. Yeah, I tried a bunch of them and they were all actually pretty tasty. Some of them are carbonated, some of them aren't. I guess I would say some of them reminded me of Red Bull a little bit just in how like medicinal they tasted almost you know what i mean sure not in an unpleasant way but you know how red bull kind of has that like little tanginess to it yeah i don't hate red bull but i don't love the taste either mm. 
I kept going for, I think it was called Real Gold, maybe, that's that, good that stuff. you showed me. That's yes. more like a soda, though. Right. Yeah, that's not, doesn't come in those little bottles, I don't think. It gave me that little pop of caffeine and sugar to get me going. Mm-hmm. You want to hear more about vending machines? Episode 14. We talked about them at length. Another type of machine that you could see in train stations are gontrapone machines. Talked about these before, too. For a few hundred yen, you can get all sorts of little trinkets, toys, souvenirs, novelties. Uh, on our last trip in Hiroshima Station, I found my Red Wing boots. Like, I have, I have two pairs of Red Wing boots that I wear very often. And then at Hiroshima Station, they had a gontrapone machine selling little itty-bitty versions of those exact same boots. So that was pretty exciting. Did we get off in Hiroshima? This was before I met up with you. This was okay. on my way down to Kagoshima. Okay. Yeah, because I think we rode through Hiroshima together. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah, you might find train-specific stuff, too. I think the station oh. in Nico had, like, some train pins or something yes, like that. those pins are all over the place. Like, if you want to pick up little wearable souvenirs from different cities, those are great to look for. Like, they got all sorts of just little enamel pins with, like, things relating to the city. Those are fun. I have a big collection of those, actually. Yeah. Another thing you're going to see in the train station a lot of the time is a waiting room. They're fascinating. They're rooms where you wait. Yeah. Particularly useful when you're traveling long distances. You don't want to show up two minutes before your train gets there, because it takes a while to get through the station sometimes yeah the waiting rooms i remember like they're all kind of the same from what i remember like they're all just kind of a big room full of chairs but the chairs are all facing in the same direction which is kind of funny and the reason they're facing in one direction is because at that end of the room that they're all facing is a a huge timetable that shows all the trains that are going to be leaving soon yeah just keep an eye on it the one we stayed in last time had some vending machines, too. I think it had, like, an ice cream vending machine and a couple drink vending machines. Yeah. It was nice. We were there for, like, 15 minutes or something. Mm-hmm. But it's better than just standing on the platform or standing in the middle of the station, being in everybody's way, <laughs> waiting for your train. Definitely. So let's say you're a smoker, Paul. Can you smoke in the waiting room? No. Where do you want to go? Yeah, go to the smoking room. That's a good name for it. Yeah. Just little ventilated rooms that you can pop in and have a smoke. Yeah, smoking is not allowed on almost all trains in Japan now. You used to be able to smoke like in between the cars, I think, right? Yeah. And also you can't smoke in any stations unless it's in one of those special smoking rooms. I haven't been inside one of these, but I do not imagine that it's very pleasant in there. Because what I remember of these is like seeing someone come out of one of those and you just see this thick cloud of smoke like hanging over everybody's heads in there. Like I think I would get lightheaded just standing in there. Yeah. I don't think the smokers care, but yeah, I wouldn't like it. Oh, man. I've been in some smoke shacks at bars. Yeah. Not, not, not fun. That reminds me of this one guy that I knew that like I'd never met somebody that smelled more strongly of cigarettes like every <laughs> moment of his life. Like, holy crap. And there are other people, like I work with people now where it's like, I find out that they smoke. It's like, I had no idea. I never smelled any hint of it on you, you know? Yeah, some people are sly like that. Yeah. I used to work with a car salesman that was just coffee and cigarettes. Hmm. I don't know how he ever sold a car because like 
he just smelled disgusting and his breath was like the worst thing ever. I'm like, I don't Amazing. know how you don't scare away everybody immediately, but yeah. he somehow got it done. A nice guy, though. So what else we got at the station, Jason? Well, coin lockers can be very useful, and they are at most decent-sized train stations. Very useful. You can store things there for up to three calendar days, although it might depend on the station. You'll want to look at the signs posted. Uh, They have different sizes, so whether you just want to leave your coat for a bit or you want to just stick all of your luggage in there while you go do something else, you should be covered. Great for day trips. If you're going to be staying overnight, one night somewhere, but coming back, you don't want to take all your luggage with you. Definitely. They're just a few hundred yen, and you can pay with coins, or sometimes you can pay with IC cards too, another good use for IC cards. Yeah, I suppose we should mention that at a lot of these stores, you can use IC cards too. Oh, that's true. At the mall, at the Ekiban vendors, you could use your IC card to pay for everything. Mm -hmm. That's super convenient. For these coin lockers, sometimes you get like a physical key, but these days I've seen a lot where there's actually like a touchscreen kiosk where you just get a pin number. Or if you use your IC card, you might just use the IC card to like unlock the locker. Yeah. I always thought about these as for travelers, right? But I was watching a documentary about Shinjuku Station, and they were following this guy that's a passenger every day. And he put his like non-work clothes in it every morning because he worked such long hours, he would come back to the train station and just go straight out from there without ever going home. So he'd bring everything he needed for the whole day and leave what he didn't need for work in a coin locker every day. Interesting. Yeah. So worst case scenario, Uh you lose something. Oh, no. Who knows where it ended up? Maybe you lost it while you're walking. Maybe you left it on the train. Could be anywhere. Most train stations are going to have a lost and found desk. So you can go up to them, describe what you lost and where you think you lost it, and they will check their system. And if there's a match, they'll tell you where it is, and you go to that office and you pick it up. It sometimes takes a few hours for something to get found and then entered. So if you go right away, maybe they don't have a record of it yet, but wait a few hours and they might. Another interesting note is there is a law called the Property Act in Japan where all lost things have to be turned over to the police. That's the standard procedure. So most train companies will hold your item for a week or two, and then they'll hand it over to the police. Huh. You know, I feel like in the U.S., if you go to a lost and found anywhere, I mean, I don't even know where you would find one of those these days, but like 90% of the time at those places, they're not going to have what you lost. In Japan, 90% chance they do have what you lost. Like I've heard so many crazy stories about people finding things that they thought were lost forever. Or even sometimes they'll like, I mean, depending on where you left something, they'll reach out to you and like send whatever you lost back to you. I even, in my research for the next episode that we're doing, I was reading about like scams and stuff. And I did, I mean, it's super rare, but I heard about some people that got pickpocketed in Japan. Like someone would steal their wallet and take the money out of it, but then their wallet would still get returned back to them with all of the cards and other stuff in there. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> when I was a little kid, I left a stuffed animal in a drawer at a hotel, and they mailed it back to us. Nice. Without even asking. They just put it in the mail. That was, that was super nice of them. Yeah, for sure. I keep seeing these tweets where people being like, Japan's such a great place. 
I've lost my wallet three times and every single time it's returned to me. And I'm like, who loses their wallet three times? Like, what are you doing, buddy? Keep it in your pocket, man. How do you, how do you just lose your wallet? Some people are not good about that stuff. We have lost and found at work. And you're 100% right. People come back in looking for stuff, but it's almost never something we have. I got this huge pile of junk that nobody ever comes in to reclaim. And we either just give it away or throw it away. And the, peop- the things that people come back for, we don't have. It's really f- weird how that works. All right, well, the train's about to come. Let's go head to the platform, Jason. Okay. Oh, man, look at all these new sights and sounds that there are to experience. <laughs> so on the platform, you might see more shops and vending machines. Uh, especially like on Shinkansen platforms, they will often have a little kind of mini convenience store kind of thing. They might also be selling bentos and sandwiches and snacks. You can get a last minute thing there. Yep. I like to get my last minute drinks. I go find a vending machine if I've got like three minutes. Yeah. Small heated waiting rooms might be available, especially good for the winter months. If it's cold on the platform, if it's an outdoor platform. Yep. Made all out of windows so you can see your train arriving. They've got the timetables up there as well. Yeah, more timetables. So you know exactly when your train's coming, and you know that you're on the right platform. It just helps you verify that everything is correct, and you know exactly what's going on. Yeah, and sometimes, Paul, have you seen where like a train will split in half, and then each half will go to a different destination? I don't know if I've seen that in front of me, my face. It happened to me on our last trip. Oh, before, no. Before we met up, I was like so confused. Like, which which car do I get on? I don't I don't get it. I had to ask an attendant and he helped me out, but it worked out. Another thing are cue markers. Yes. There are marks on the ground that will show you where to stand when you're waiting for the train. They actually like outline the area where the line should be. And if it's a busy station where there are going to be multiple trains arriving and leaving within minutes of each other. There might actually be two different lines kind of painted on the ground, one for the first train, one for the second. I remember when I first learned this, I was early for my train. So I was the first person like on the platform, you know, right where my train was going to be. And then people started lining up like 10 feet to my left. And by the time I realized what was happening, like I had to go to the back of this long line because I was in the wrong place. (laughs) Not that it really matters, you know. I mean, especially with reserved seats, you're going to end up at your seat anyway. But yeah. Also related to this, should we talk about the women-only cars, Paul? Yeah, don't pull a Paul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They'll usually be marked in pink and have some sort of stencil of a woman. I mean, I remember the inside of the car has a lot of pink, but even like on the platform, there's a big pink rectangle that says women-only and stuff, right? Yeah. And the only reason I made that mistake is because I was rushing down the stairs and I like just made the train and I just ran on it. I wasn't lining up or anything. Yeah. And I followed a guy. Yeah. I mean, if you're not, you're not going to get in trouble if you go in the wrong door, but you should immediately like move to the next car over that's yeah. not women only. No one even gave me weird looks. Like no, no one seemed to care. I figured it out after like a minute. They probably just assumed, oh, this foreigner doesn't know what's yeah, going on. Yeah. They gave me the pass. Yeah. Do you know when they introduced those? 90s? Year 2000, because groping is a, is a problem on overcrowded trains. The men who grope are called chikan, so that's what you can yell if somebody starts to get handsy. I have some stats here, actually, okay. on that. So uh, a survey in 2019 found that 47.9% of women reported 
being touched inappropriately on a train. That's crazy. That is a big number. I also saw that roughly 80% of Chikan incidents go unreported. And of those that are reported, what percentage do you think lead to an arrest, Paul? One. A little better than that. 4.6%. Okay, okay. Still not great. No. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of reasons not to report, but part of that is like, can you be late to work or school because you're reporting an incident or whatever? Like, you got to go. That sucks. Yeah. I've heard it's been declining a lot, though, in recent years because they are getting tougher on it. They used to be like, oh, you know, it's a tight trade. Boys will be boys. Now they're taking you. The authorities are taking it a little bit more seriously. Yeah. I've definitely seen signs like warning about that and stuff. And I know that uh, if you buy a phone in Japan these days, when you use the camera on your phone, it has to make a sound. Yes. All the phones sold in Japan will make a sound when you take a picture. You can't take creeper shots. Yeah. Like upskirt photos, that kind of stuff. I've actually got a little bit about this in our next episode. Okay. Um, I have another disturbing topic to talk about relating to train stations. This episode's taking a dark turn. Yeah. Kind of out of nowhere. So maybe trigger warning, self-harm. Five, four, three, two, one. So sometimes people use the trains to commit suicide, sadly. And I, I looked into the stats on this. I learned a lot and... I'm a little more disturbed than I, than I was, to be honest. Hundreds of times per year across the country, people kill themselves by train. The train station monitors, like if you see signs talking about incidents relating to this, they call them Jinshin Jiko, which means a human accident. Mm. That term doesn't necessarily always mean a suicide. It can also be used for falls or medical emergencies or if somebody like climbed down onto the tracks to get their cell phone or something like that. But if you do see that on a screen in a station, you know, you might wonder. And it's very possible that it was a suicide. Uh, Stats I found from 2021 said that 8.4% of train disruptions that year were caused by train suicides. That's suspensions and delays over 30 minutes. 8.4% of those were because of suicide. That's sadly high. And the total number of train suicides for that year, 536. Wow. Much bigger number than I expected. The statistic I found was from 1999, and it was 5% of suicides in Japan were on train tracks, which is one in 20. So that's Hmm. fairly significant. Anyways, what are they doing about this problem, Jason? Lots of stuff, actually. Uh, let me let me bring you down a little bit before I lift you up, if that's okay. I got a, okay, a little I'm bit I'm already more. down, but kick me some more. <laughs> so I was also disturbed by the fact that, did you know train companies charge relatives of the deceased to compensate for those delays? Yes. I have heard some light in that, in that it does discourage people from doing that. Sure. Because they don't want their family to suffer financially because of their decision. Yeah. But it also is like, oh, man, really? Yeah. (laughs) Like, really? So I'm surprised kind of that that's a deterrent because from what I saw, they don't really advertise that. Mm. It's more like they bill you after the fact and kick you while you're down, you know? Oh, wow. And the longer the delay is, the more the family gets charged. Okay. So I saw, this is kind of an old stat too, but in 2010, the average bill was 6 million yen. Wow. With today's exchange rate, that's a little over $40,000. 
Wow. That's ridiculously high. Yeah. There is the culture of compensation in Japan. Like, I feel like I've heard um, if someone like cheats in a marriage and ends up getting divorced, that them or their family might have to pay compensation to the partner they were cheating on. Interesting. I've not heard that. Uh, Another fact, I was going to call it a fun fact, but it's not all that fun maybe, uh, is that housing prices are closely linked to suicides. Do you know that? No. Houses near common suicide spots lose value, and if a person commits suicide in a place that they rent, the landlord has to disclose that when they're trying to rent it out again. Okay. Uh, And of course, that drops the value. So landlords can also charge families of suicide victims for lowering the value of their property. I feel like I've heard that here too. Like if some murder suicide happens in a house, it's really hard to sell it. I feel like I wouldn't I, care. I don't think here they have to disclose I'm that. I'm not sure if they do or not. Maybe people just find out. I don't know. Hmm. Probably different state to state and county to county here. Maybe there's some places where you do. Maybe. But anyway, yeah, let's look on the bright side now. Uh, they do have suicide prevention measures in place, at least at some stations. Yeah. A lot of the busy stations these days have a little wall with gates that slide open and shut. So kind of you a can't big just wall. fall onto the track. They're like chest height walls. Like it would be hard to climb over that unnoticed yeah so it'd have to make you try extra hard it would give people a chance to try to stop you it'd be harder to get the timing right so those actually seem to work in preventing suicides yeah some stations also have these blue led lights installed at the ends of the platforms did you see that i found that interesting and i dove into that a little bit okay so there was a 2013 scientific study published that suggested that blue lights in train stations could cut suicides by as much as 84%. But that was only one study. And there's so many other factors involved in people deciding to kill themselves that that number's just a number, right? Yeah, I saw that other researchers believe that the lights only reduce suicide by 14%. And I've also heard like with that light the colored light idea or, or colors like impacting human behavior. I feel like everything I've heard about that is that it's not proven or reliable at all. And it's all kind of shaky. And I mean, just intuitively, it sounds kind of not real. You know what I mean? I actually found a quote from one of the scientists that contributed to that paper. Yeah. And they were saying they get calls from all over the world about people asking them about this. Oh, does this really work? What are these blue lights? And here's the quote, whenever somebody asks me whether they should do blue lights or platform screen doors, I will immediately answer, you should do the platform screen doors. That doesn't surprise me. But the lights can't hurt and they maybe help. Sure. And even if like, there might be other benefits, if it helps people's mood, well, there's other people that will affect than just suicide people too. Sure. If, I mean, you could just be wasting money, but. I also thought it was interesting that they only install those at the ends of the platforms because apparently that's where most people jump from. Hmm. I would assume they just want to get as far away from other people as possible. Or get hit while the train's moving its fastest. Oh, that's a good point too. Oh man, yeah. Didn't think of that. But yeah, my advice is if you see somebody on the tracks, hit an emergency SOS button. They're around like on the pillars in in the platform. So Yeah, because people do accidentally fall sometimes too. Yeah. Or sometimes people are 
not smart and they go after their phone or whatever or they're drunk and they trip or yeah that happens also some stations there'll be posters with suicide prevention hotlines for people to call to moving on to less dark stuff i learned about the point and call system yeah me too which is awesome i love things like this so pointing and calling is a method of occupational safety to avoid making mistakes. And the gist of it is whenever there's an important indicator, you point at it and you verbally say the thing. And it just makes it really, really hard to ignore it. And it is supposed to reduce mistakes by up to 85%. Yeah. So like if you're on the platform waiting for your train, as a train arrives or as it leaves, you'll probably see a lot of attendants around like making gestures and yelling things. And it looks like they're not talking to anybody specific. It's like, what, what are they doing? This is what they're doing. It's like going down a checklist, but like, I feel like in a lot of jobs, checklists are involved and people eventually just kind of skim over them. And like, eventually you get used to it and you don't really pay close attention to each item. But this whole point and call thing is just to force the workers to like pay conscious attention to every little thing on their checklist. Yeah. I feel like it makes great sense. If you do something a million times, like if you're just standing there and you're like, you know, the train's coming and you're just thinking, oh, the train's coming. Everybody should be back. Eventually, sometime that's just the thoughts could go through your head, but it's not going to mean anything to you. But if every single time you're like, train's coming, everybody back, like you'll, you just won't ever miss it. Right. Yep. I love it. That's been spread all over the world now. They're originally in Japan, but companies everywhere do this now. Hmm. They should. That's smart. Another thing you will hear on a train platform is those chimes that we mentioned, the little jingles. They're a bunch of nice little melodies that will stick in your head and kind of, uh, I don't know, they become one of those things that just like sticks in your memory as like part of your Japan experience, you know? Um, And those are there to let people know when a train is arriving or when a train is leaving. And there's so many different melodies. There are different melodies for arriving trains, melodies for trains that are leaving, and different melodies at different stations. Like, it's all custom a lot of the time. Yeah. I find this fascinating. They're specifically designed for the ones where you're inside the train and the train's leaving to give a feeling of relief and soothing. Like, oh, you're just running through the station and you finally get to relax on the train. And when you're arriving at a new station, they are supposed to cause alertness. To be like, oh, I'm dozing off. And then you hear, oh, that's the jingle for my station. And you run off the train real quick. Yeah. And now I'm wondering all of a sudden if they did studies or if they could do studies, like what they would find around like different sounds that you could play when somebody's like sleeping on a train and they get to their station. Like if you play the same melody every time, does their subconscious eventually like just know to respond to that sound and like you immediately wake up when you're at your station i feel like it does i would think it would like you never know if someone's sleeping for sure but i swear i've seen people that were sleeping and then the door opens and the chime plays and like they just bolt up and they're off the train well and i think a lot of people have had the experience of like a sound making its way into their dream do you know what i mean yeah yeah you hear something in your dream they even use that in movies, you know? It's a dream sequence, and then they, like, hear something in re- in real life, and they're like, whoa, what's going on? What is this? Yeah. Anyway, I have some history about the melodies. Oh, okay. So those chimes go back to 1971, when Keihan Electric Railways introduced the first train melodies. JNR, the Japanese National Railways, they originally used bells 
to mark arrivals and departures. But after JNR was privatized and split into those JR companies in 1987, at that point, local managers had more flexibility to like customize the experience at their station. So that's why like each of them kind of got to pick their own music for their station. And uh, a lot of those melodies were composed specifically for the railways. So yeah, there's a lot of different stuff out there now. I saw an interview with a guy who had written over 200 train melodies that were being used in Japan. Nice. And I found out that he did the melodies for a whole line and every seven second melody, if you stick them all together in the order of the train station, plays a continuous song. Dude, that's awesome. Right? That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You brushed up on another fun fact I had with the seven seconds thing. That is an attribute that most of those melodies share. They're, they're exactly seven seconds because somehow they determined that that's the ideal length for them. This guy also said that he tries to take the context of the neighborhood and the surroundings. So if it's in like a new hip part of town, it'll be more like new music. And if it's in an older section of town, it'll sound more traditional. Nice. I saw that the one by uh, Disneyland in Tokyo has like some Disney song playing. Yeah. Want to talk about pushers? <laughs> yeah. This is probably one of the most like iconic things about Japanese trade stations. Yeah, they're pretty famous. So during rush hour at busy stations, you might see train station staff members shoving people into the train to get the doors to close. Those people are called oshia or pushers. And their job is to push people into trains, but also to stop people from trying to get into train cars that are already full. They're on such tight schedules that like the trains got to depart. Like they just got to get everybody on because the next train's coming. Yeah. And if you, I mean, if you see video or see it happen in person, it's incredible. Yeah. Like you'll see a door still open with a crowd of people around it. And you're thinking there's no way all those people are going to get in there, but they will get them in there. Yeah. It's amazing. And like it, this, this job sounds kind of silly at first. Like, well, anybody could do that. You just like shove them until they're all in there. But it actually takes as long as six months to go through the training to become a pusher. Like yeah. They have to push with both hands and keep their balance, but they have to be gentle. You know, you can't hurt anybody. Yep. You got to be firm because you got to get them yep. in there. They always wear the white gloves. They're looking good, all dressed up. Yeah, yeah. And they kind of team up too. Like there'll be one or two guys pushing at every door. And as one door gets closed, they will sprint to the next door. And all of a sudden on that last door, there'll be like four, five, six guys all pushing to get that last door closed. It's fun to watch. Historically, I saw that pushers first appeared in New York City subway. Really? And that everybody hated them because they didn't care. They were thugs. They hurt people. They just mm -hmm. jammed people in there. I saw stories of like people getting in fights with pushers and all the crowd would like cheer them on. Like, yeah, get them. <laughs> wow. America's so uncivilized. <laughs> I also heard that nowadays there aren't people that are hired just to be pushers. It's staff that also do other things. Oh, I actually saw that it's a part-time job that they only work during rush hour. Okay. But I wonder Maybe if there's that some means... full-timers that like do it during rush hour, but then they're doing other stuff Maybe. at other times. Yeah. Well, this episode is starting to get pretty long, but do we have time to talk about some notable train stations? Why not? 
I just we, had a few. We could try to make it quick. Yeah. So first, let's talk about Shinjuku. World's busiest train station. It sure is. Three and a half million people passing through daily. Like I said, it has 12 different train lines operated by five different railway companies, a total of 36 train platforms, <laughs> and over 200 exits. I got lost That's in this crazy. station. And I've heard that even locals can yeah, get lost yeah. in the station. It's huge. It's ridiculous. And they're always doing construction too. So even if oh, you yeah. are a local that takes the same route, you can get lost sometimes. Yeah. On these big ones, I'm always like, I just try to find any exit, nearest exit, whatever, get up to the street and use my GPS. Agreed. Yeah. Instead of trying to find the perfect closest exit. Yeah. I saw that they... They are actually doing a major renovation to make it easier to find your way around nice. in Shinjuku Station, but it won't be done until 2046. <laughs> yeah, that stuff takes time. Yeah. This the is station so is directly connected through walkways and shopping malls to five other stations. That's crazy. That's pretty crazy, too. Yeah. There is a bus terminal connected to the station that serves over 1,600 different long-distance bus routes. That's insane. That is insane. But the bus terminal is where I got lost. Like, that's where I ended up when I was trying to get to a certain <laughs> train. I'm like, how do I keep ending up at this bus terminal? What? He's walking in loops. It takes 45 minutes by foot to get from the farthest end of the station to the other farthest end of the station. Wow. Yeah, I mean, really can't overstate how huge these stations can get. And part of why it's so confusing is because they keep digging lower as they add on. So there's like seven different floors or something like that. Mm. Something just popped into my head that I saw recently on Instagram. Uh, do you know the tallest station? Like the most number of floors? Mm, no. It's Kyoto Station. Oh, okay. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. I haven't spent a ton of time there. Me either. I feel like I arrive on the Shinkansen and I get off. You know like, what's weird is that I keep seeing pictures of like these really beautiful train stations. And I'm like, I've been to that station, but I didn't see that. Like I was in the wrong uh, part, you know? I do remember Kyoto Station being pretty nice. Yeah. I don't know. This one I thought was really crazy. You know how busy this station is? There's another train station, Yoyogi. We're back to Shinjuku. Yeah, we're still clear, Shinjuku. Right? Okay. Yoyogi Station's only 800 meters away. They get three and a half million travelers a day at this station. And there's another station 800 meters away. Tokyo is insane. Yeah. Every night, there's only three hours where there's no passengers in the train station. So they've got crews that go out and clean the whole station and do all of the maintenance work for all the tracks and everything in three hours every night. It's amazing. And they have a robotic floor scrubber, kind of like a Roomba, but a huge machine that has the whole layout blueprints downloaded into it and just runs around and scrubs the floors for them. That's awesome. And that reminds me of another Instagram reel I saw recently where it was like a massive car-sized Roomba going down the street. It was, oh, it was you know, a digital render. It wasn't sure. real, but sure. that'd be fun. Tokyo? Yeah. Okay, Tokyo Station. Probably the prettiest train station in Tokyo, maybe even in the country. Well, this is where I had the same thought you just had, where... I've been to Tokyo Station how many times to ride the Shinkansen, but I've only ever transferred. I've never seen the building. Yeah, I've never been outside it either. But on the Marunouchi side of the station, you can see the original red brick station building. It dates back to 1914. It's gorgeous, man. Victorian Gothic architecture. It looks like an early 1900s super fancy 
Western government building or something. You yeah. Know? It's got this big plaza out front with these big green lawns and everything. Yeah, oh, it, it looks, looks amazing. amazing. It took a lot of damage in World War II, but they eventually rebuilt it to its full glory again. It is glorious. It's been designated an important cultural property. There's a private entrance at this station reserved exclusively for the Imperial family. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Them and their guests take carriage rides from the station to the palace down this specific route. Horse-drawn carriage? Yes. Wow. Yes. Fancy. I got a fun fact. Yeah? At Tokyo Station, there's a shop called Ekibenya Matsuri. Ah. Which means like a station bento seller festival. Okay. It's inside the ticket gates on the first floor. They sell over 170 kinds of ekiben wow. each day. Wow. Including specialty bentos, not just from Tokyo, but from across the country. And they sell an estimated 7,000 to 10,000 bentos every single day. Ooh. You can even watch them make them there. They make them like super, super fresh. That's a huge number. Yeah. The Tokyo Station Hotel is inside the station, and it is a super famous mega luxury hotel. Mm. Highest class hotel. Did you look up prices? No. I didn't even want to know. I bet it's a lot. Yep. The station survived the Great Kanto Earthquake. In 1929, but during the renovations recently, they added in a bunch of seismic dampers. They jacked up the building and put these big rubber devices in between the base and the building itself so it can wiggle when there's earthquakes. It's funny to imagine those under like this rigid red brick building. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Last one we want to talk about is Shibuya Station. Fourth busiest commuter rail station in Japan and the world. Go to the Hachiko exit, of course, to see Hachiko and Shibuya Crossing. We've mentioned those a bunch of times before. Another thing you should look for is this huge 30-meter-long mural on the wall of a passage between the JR Yamanote and Keio Inokashira lines. Did you read much about that mural? I saw a picture of it. It's crazy, man. So the, it's called The Myth of Tomorrow, and it's a depiction of people caught in an atomic bomb blast. Like, it's pretty intense. And it has a really interesting history because this mural is by Japanese artist Taro Okamoto. And it was originally commissioned and installed in Mexico. Wow. Strangely. Yeah. From 1968 to 1969. But then it vanished. This massive 30-meter-long mural just disappeared. And they thought it was lost forever. Maybe it was like held by some private collector, you know, they got it on the black market or whatever. But it resurfaced in 2003 when they discovered it in a storage facility in Mexico City. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> that is crazy. So random. So it was repaired. They returned it to Japan and then they installed it here in Shibuya Station in 2008. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, another fun fact, there's this guerrilla art group in Japan called Chimpom. You can kind of compare them to Banksy, you know, like doing social commentary kind of stuff, uh, street art, that kind of thing. Uh, and in 2011, after the Fukushima nuclear disaster, they added on a little extension to this mural. So remember, the mural, mural is about an atomic bomb blast. So they added an extension that showed the failed Fukushima reactors. Wow. Pretty strong statement. Yeah. The only thing I got is that of all the stations in Tokyo... 
this one has a reputation of being super easy to get lost in hmm. because there's no central corridor that connects things. Yeah. It's all just up, down, windy, left, right, making it really difficult if you're not watching the signs really closely to find where you're going. I believe it. I remember walking long distances in that station, but I, I feel like I was always just headed for the Hachiko exit. So yeah, yeah. I always made my way there. The signs for that one are pretty uh, yeah. clear. Are we done, Paul? That's all I got. Sweet. Well, I hope you enjoyed learning about Japanese train stations. Before we go, we should thank our Shogun-level patrons, Wesley C., Nicholas McKibben. <laughs> You're back to it. <laughs> oh, man, I couldn't, couldn't hold it back. Uh, Kevin Harris. Brady K, Jack, Michael, David Imani, Jennifer Crutchfield, Darwin Perrier, Max, and Katerina and Ellery. Thank you all so much for your support. Thank you. And for everyone who's not a member, please consider joining the Patreon. If you don't have a few bucks to throw our way each month, you can also help us by telling a friend or tell the world in the form of a review, perhaps. Or you could just like stand around outside with giant signs talking about how great we are. You know, however, however you want to do it. Hop on the Discord and say hello. Yeah, you could do that too. You um, can find us on Twitter and Instagram at that. SJP Podcast. That, that's true. That's true. Uh, Paul, what are we talking about next time? Our next episode is really special. Is it? Because it's the first time ever that the listeners have picked the episode for us. Specifically, our patrons nominated and voted for what this episode was going to be. Yeah, this wasn't just a suggestion. This was like, you know, there's this whole formal uh, election process. Yeah, this is the first one that we did not pick ourselves. Yeah. And we are going to be talking about red light districts in Japan. You filthy people out there. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> It'll be fun. It'll uh, oh, Just you wait. It's an interesting topic. It's, it's going to get And crazy. it's not going to be for the kids. Not at all. Well, that should be titillating. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.